0: I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Welcome to a very special episode, because today's guests are MGA royalty. Luis Muñoz Rojas is the founder, and Richard Clapham is the CEO of the Global MGA Duel, which is part of the Howden Group. Jewel is now a business that writes more than $3 billion in premium and employs 1,300 people in 19 countries. And the firm is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. Luis and I have a bit of history. In the 1990s, we both worked for the biggest broker in Spain, Gili Carvajal. Aon took over Gili Carvajal in 1998. For me, that was the cue to change career and go off and become a journalist but for Luis, it fired the starting pistol on an incredible entrepreneurial journey with a friendly London wholesale broker called David Howden. I'll let Luis tell the full story later on. But I don't want you to think that this is a backward-looking podcast celebrating the achievements of the past quarter century. There's a bit of the origin story, because it's a remarkable one, but this is just as much about the here and now of the reality of today's market and the direction that jewel and the MGA sector will be heading in in the next 25 years. Nothing's off the agenda. Twenty five years ago, MGAs were absolutely not in fashion. But today we seem to be on the third or fourth wave of a revolution in how commercial insurance is underwritten and distributed, where MGAs always seem to be at the cutting edge. Who better to be our guides than today's guests? They've built a global insurance underwriting and distribution machine that can bring geographical and product diversification to even some of the largest carriers. And from the tone of this talk it feels like they've only just got started. You be the judge, but because I've known one of the subjects so long, I also think it allows us to have a much more open, candid and fun conversation than we might otherwise have had. Enjoy the podcast. Richard and Luis,
1: welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Thank you very much. We're here in Madrid, which is a big part of the origin story of I suppose like all these superhero movies. Now you have the sequel and the second one and the third one, and then, then you have the origin story. It's great to be here in Madrid, which is part of the origin story of Duel, and a lot of people wouldn't know that. So, Luis, I mean, you're obviously a native Spaniard. And in fact, we'd have to disclose that we used to work together at the biggest Spanish brokerage of its time, and we worked together in the Lloyds broker that it owned in London in the early 90s. Tell us that story, because it's a really fascinating one. It started with a relationship with David Howden, a wholesale
2: broker who used to place the DNO for that Spanish broker. Exactly. So, Mark, the the good thing is that you know the story perfectly well, because you were part of that story as well. Not part of the story of Duel, but part of the story of Hilly Carvajal was the name. And we were both working at Hilly Carvajal. We were working at the Lloyds Broker of Hilly Carvajal, which, if I'm not wrong, was one of the few, if not the only, at that time, non-British Lloyds Broker. It was the first one to apply for and succeed to become a Lloyds Broker. Previously, they'd all been done by acquisition. Exactly. So at that time when we started, the liability of directors and officers was starting to become a real important issue in Spain. And David had become uh, known to Gili Carvajal, I think, through our current Israeli partners. I think it was through Ronnie Davidoff, who is still a shareholder at Howden. He introduced David to Gili Carvajal. And the uh, liaison with Howden was done between us and I was in Madrid the person taking care of that book. So that created a huge relation with David, and from directors and officers, we started to develop other liability portfolios, engineers, architects, you name it. And at that moment, when we started, all the know-how was in UK. And then we were starting to see that that know-how was starting to become local, and there was starting to be certain anti-selection in the risks that were trying to access the London market and those risks that were being assumed by local markets. Together with that, it came the acquisition of Gilly Carvajal by Aeon, and I thought that it would become a good moment for myself to start something. I had been an old friend of David for a very long time, and we both sat and thought, what can we do? And we decided that creating an MGA would be the best way to bring international capacity with local expertise. And that was in 1998? That was in 1998, and the company was actually officially founded on August 1998. So in September, we were underwriting business, very, very near the first renewal. And it was a very difficult position because the figure of the writing agencies, of the MGAs, is a very well-known figure, mainly in Anglo-Saxon countries, but in Spain, it was not known at all. Because in Spain, there were brokers... And there were tied
1: agents. And certainly if you travel around Spain, you go to any small town, there's always a Matfre or a generally local tied agent. Exactly, You can see their office sort of when you walk down the high street,
2: but they were tied to only one insurer. They were tied to one insurer and they were mainly a commercial force. They were not doing any underwriting or anything force. like that. It yeah. was just a sale force. We wanted to do a model that was actually convincing the traditional capacity providers to the Spanish market to give their uh, pen to us so that we would apply the local knowledge, the local know-how to do the wordings in Spanish, to do absolutely uh, like if they were sitting in Madrid or, or Barcelona or wherever, no? The model was hard to explain, but I must be very, very grateful that lots of local brokers bought into the idea. They felt comfortable with the idea. In order to give that additional comfort we managed to convince the uh, political parties to put an amendment to a law to contemplate the figure of the underwriting agency.
1: So DGS. it had to be legally defined
2: for the first time because it had never been contemplated. Exactly, exactly. And we had loads of meetings with the uh, local regulator. It's there. It, it, it's in the law, no? Incredible. Exactly. We had to go through that process, and the DGS helped us a lot because they wanted us to be registered. And that's why in the register number, dual is the number 0001. <laughs> I don't know how many there are now. I suppose much more, no? Well, I suppose L- no. License, Clearly, much license more. License to kill, exactly. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I tried to get. Can, I, can you put seven? No, zero zero <laughs> seven. But no, they didn't get it. So we started to work. We started to open to many different operations. We thought that the model could be applied to other areas. So after creating Dual Iberica, we very soon after we created Dual International. As the vehicle to expand the same model that was expanded first to Italy, then to Germany, then in UK. the UK, we bought something. Yep. And Richard, you will tell the story because now, how many are we now?
3: So I think as we sit here today, we're probably underwriting about $3.2 billion. So over that 25 years, we've grown from zero to 3.25, and we're now operating across 19 countries and have built up a very strong team of 1,300 employees across that piece. So it's a big change from those early days back in 1998. But I think the interesting part there was the emphasis around local. And if you look at Jewel today, one of our key drivers that sat right across the piece is that need to be local. So we may be in 19 countries, but actually we have local talent, local team, local expertise, and that's really what we offer and crafting out. And the other piece, I think, in that story was... It was looking for another way of distributing and setting up the MJ was another form of distribution that's brought into play. And I think as we look across the Howden Group as a whole, we're constantly looking at different distribution models and how actually we can get product and client and our carrier partners all together. It's interesting you talking about that original rationale for the business was, of
1: course, you had a class of business that came out of nowhere for Spain, because I think it was due to an EU directive, wasn't yeah,
2: it? Yeah, it, it was EU, but also... It's like countries evolved, no? So, yeah. so in the past, I suppose that doctors were not even buying insurance from the cell. They consider that they that's not it. necessary.
1: And that becomes compulsory. I'm sorry,
2: from one year because a discussion that I used to constantly have when we created with capacity providers, they would say, well, Spain is now, let's say, like UK was 20 years ago. I say, yeah. Correct. But that doesn't mean that it will take 20 years to get there. together. Together. Mm-hmm. It means that in two years we will be there. Because that's how things work. So we have to take all that expertise, learn, put it here, because in two years everybody is going to be crazy and saying, I don't go to the operating room if I don't have an insurance. Yes. Which is if you talk with a doctor, at that moment he would say, No, I want to go to an operating room without insurance. Because that would be like doubting of myself, no. Well, that changed mm-hmm. dramatically, no? Yeah, but it was interesting what you were saying about that anti-selection. So even by the
1: late 90s, a class that was only sort of eight or nine years old, effectively in Spain, was already maturing. And those London or international underwriters that had previously just been sitting in London waiting for that nicely packaged risk to come to them, because I know we helped package that risk for them and translating it. And we were doing all the sort of mailbox work to get that to them. They realised that they had to come out. If they were less, they would only be sent the most horrendous difficult risks, which I'm sure they're quite happy to deal with. And London's got a traditional role in dealing with those. But if they wanted some of the more vanilla and more stable and profitable business, they would have to come and get it. Is that really at the heart of what Jewel's been all about? Or has that changed in any way over, over the 25 years? You know, The idea that you talk about distribution, you want to access some of the better business that probably won't come and find you. You've got to come and find it and we can be your partner to help that happen. Is that still really a core of the philosophy of the whole of Jewels all about?
3: I think ultimately it underpins us today because the reason we're in the 19 countries we're in today is we found local experts who understood that particular segment of the market they were in knew how to distribute in that market. And we've taken that across those 19 countries. So the reason is the local expertise, and we then backed it and supported it and put the infrastructure around it. But everything we do now is about having local expertise on the ground. Clearly, as we've grown bigger, we've got an ability to share over many more of those experiences on a much wider basis. But still, if you look at everything we talk about, it's about being local. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that
0: you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry, for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. I'm going to make a little bit jealous the people that might be hearing us, because as we talk, we are having
2: here some tapas with jamón and everything. (laughs) We've got the jamón in front of us. It's an example that I've always put when talking with brokers and and capacity providers. And it's a very clear one. Everybody wants a part of the market. And let's imagine that market is a leg of ham. If you stay away, what happens is that the local market gets the ham and the bones are sent to London. (laughs) So you have to be here in order to say, no, I want a part of the ham that includes ham, (laughs) <laughs> and yes, bone, but everybody gets ham and bone, not just <laughs> some people the ham and we get the bone. That's what made the difference by being here and being local. And to be honest, because some of the brokers said, look, I haven't got the time, if I can afford it, to translate everything. I haven't got the time to receive all these clauses in English that they say, I don't know, clause, number, whatever. We had to do the exercise of translating that, putting all that into a Spanish word in what our capacity providers wanted us to provide But that people here would understand and they would they would feel comfortable the same way that if they were buying a policy from any other local carrier. And that's what we achieved. And it's not a cheap way of doing business,
1: is it? Ideally, you know, the way you design a business, you want to have huge economies of scale. I suppose you can't necessarily have that when you have to be local and you have to have bases close to the ground, boots on the ground, and people giving all that service in multiple jurisdictions with different languages, with different legal systems lots of wordings, lots of very country-specific questions that you're dealing with. But obviously it has to be part of your model.
3: I think it's one of the challenges for all MGAs is actually those startup years are really, really challenging because the cost that comes in and the percentage of revenue you're actually getting off the gross premium is relatively small. So being able to invest and really establish that is hard. And I think obviously... For us, being part of a group that is very happy to invest in business and grow them, I think has been very much a key part of our success. So we've always been very happy to invest in the business today, knowing it's going to grow into the future. So, a difficult thing, as you've said. The difficult thing is when you have three,
2: four, five local offices. One talks in Spanish, that one talks in Italian, that one talks in German. Once you have enough of a number, once you get to that scale, then it's much easier to have a central, let's say, backup, a COO type of role in one place, that you can put it in London or wherever, in our case in London, but it could be anywhere. And it's much easier to provide that service. And Richard, will be able to talk about this. Now it's less demanding to open a new line, a new office than it used to be in the past. When we had very few uh, offices. it was a big bet. Yes, of course. And also,
1: you've got a way of doing it. You've got a modus operandi, and you've got an operations team who know exactly what to do,
3: what infrastructure needs to be put in place. I think it's very tempting, once you've got that sort of level of distribution, to think, I'm going to centralise and centralise everything. And yes, there are logically some efficiencies in doing that, but you then start losing the very thing that you set yourself up for, which is about being local and standing on the ground. And part of the reason we've gone for a regionalised model and empowered each of our four regions is, you were talking about ham, I often talk about the ice cream. In fact, ice cream is universal across the world, but, you know, it tastes slightly different every country you go to. And I think the reality is, in having a regional model, we flex ourselves so we reflect that region and the way that region wants to do business, because not everybody wants to do business the same way. One of the interesting ones I tend to look at as an example about different ways of doing business is... Our Italian colleagues and our Australian colleagues are both very significant rights of SME business. One is very heavily digitalized and the other one not quite so digitalised. But that's because our brokers and our customers want to work and want to operate a different way. And we don't mandate one standard piece across the board, which I think is a key differentiator in our overall approach. A little bit more cost, possibly, but actually you are really providing on the ground what people want.
1: One more question about that: those early days before we move on. Obviously... In those very early days, people said, "Well, what does dual do? You're the DNO people, DNO, or, and some professional indemnity." But in those classes, how important do you think it was that DNO was such a boom class of business? How important and how helpful was that at the time when you're getting over that difficult build-out phase of a business, where you know you, the PNL doesn't look very good for the first three years? How helpful was it the fact that you this fantastic tailwind of this class that was just exploding?
2: And it was probably growing at 50, 60, 70% a year. It was absolutely key, no? It's important how when you are starting a business, it's very important to know, okay, what is the element that is going to allow you to go through the first years? We were talking before we started the interview. In this country, in Spain, the expected life of any company that is created is five years. Nine out of 10 disappear on the first year. So it's very important that you have something that really helps you in that process. That was DNO and professional liability for us. We had the expertise. We had the uh, competitive edge compared with anybody else. We had developed the Spanish market and Latin America was going through exactly the same process when we formed you. So rapidly we went into Latin America and we started to commercialize DNO and professional liability. And we became the leaders in Colombia. We had a huge amount of the market in Mexico, certainly all the big companies of Mexico. We had business in Peru. Actually, I was spending more time traveling through Latin America than here in Madrid. No, probably I know more brokers from Latin America than in Madrid. And it was those products where people saw us like the guys that knew about it. But at the same time, we knew that that was going to be a short run. We knew that that expertise nowadays it lasts very short amount of time. You cannot base everything. Okay, we will be the best in DNO forever. No, DNO will commoditize. And it should commoditize and the same with professional ability, And therefore, you have to go ahead. We were talking before about the 25 years and we say, well, really, we say, what has changed? It really has been 25 years of starting, <laughs> 25 years of reinventing the wheel, 25 years of Things used to be like this, but have to change completely. It's not like a a line, no? Okay, this is the model, bam, go forward 25 years, sail on, uh, wind on the tail and enjoy the ride. Not at all. Waters, storms, you can imagine absolutely everything. But that's the difficulty, no? And that's the great thing when you understand that a company, especially a service company, its assets, its only assets go to bed every night. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that they return in the morning. So you have to really, really look after the talent. And the talent have to feel as they own the company, as they do in our company. Because that's part of the model, do, yes. as they actually do, <laughs> no? and quite rightly.
1: So tell us about that journey. You had this head start in this fantastically exploding class that was just really you know, dragging you along. It was a real kind of rocket helping you fly at the beginning. When did you start to really diversify and where did you start first? And what's that rationale that you have? Are you always trying to spot the next high growth class or sometimes were you just diversifying and trying to find new niches to go into? And anyway, how did that
2: happen, that diversification? Where did you go next and why? I would like Richard to explain this much better, no? but at the early days, we had more ideas and more plans than actually achievements. You start to say, I would like to go into this area, good luck," but you are relatively small and it's very difficult and there's constantly this discussion of chicken and egg that Some capacity providers, they were saying, You have to hire the best underwriter of this class. And the underwriter said, I will move to you once you have the capacity. And you would say, Well, Mm -hmm. who moves first? No? This now has become a much more, let's say, protocolized system, whatever. But I suppose there is no single formula. Sometimes, what I love is when a team comes with an idea and puts that idea on the table. That is what I love it. It's people with really, real experience. So,
1: some of that diversification was really because it, the right person came to you and so are you were more agnostic about what class of businesses are you were more interested in, what they were proposing. Exactly.
3: I think that was actually the key because ultimately it's the talent that we can get on the ground and their plan, their expertise in their own markets. But I think if you look over Jules' first 15 years, we were 100% in financial lines. So we use that to really grow and establish an international footprint. And with that, obviously, we got the licensing, we got the technology in play. We started building up a very significant distribution base. And I think the reality was, through the financial line markets, we'd built this international platform of scale. And really, the next stage was how do we bring more people in on that journey? And that was about identifying talent. And that really defined the products we went into, because most of those were highly specialist areas. And I suppose a good example would have been when we added title insurance, highly specialized area, limited number of insurance carriers in it, that we added in 2013 in the UK. And that has now grown out to be one of the largest title underwriters in the market. So it's taking a specialism and then growing it out. And that's another product that can significantly grow across the entirety of Jewel. And if you look now, we're underwriting actually seventy products. So in a space of ten years, we've gone from the financial lines products to seventy other products. So many, many examples we've got of where we found that talent and expertise in the local markets, and been able to bolt them onto the existing infrastructure and grow out from there.
2: I would be curious to know when it was that suddenly things changed from us having to go out fishing for people, if such expression is, is correct, fishing for talent, trying to convince talent that this was the right home, to suddenly a lot of talent knocking at our doors, no, without having to go out, it's just you wait at home and they're coming, no, wanting to present their projects.
3: I think the place of the MGA in the insurance market over the last two, three years has changed dramatically. And if we look around the number of MGAs have been formed, whether it be carriers forming them up or a bifurcated model there are many new MJs being formed across the piece. So it's a very vibrant sector. And I think people are beginning to realise the true value an MGA brings into the market. That in itself, I think, therefore helps us, as an MGA community, bring some really talented and more talented people into that space. And it just keeps on evolving. And I think that's why we're seeing a significant growth across the board now of MGA's as a whole. I suppose another thing that's really changed in 25 years,
1: 25 years ago... MJs were still. I mean, you would never say dirty word, but coming off the back of it, probably from the mid to late '80s, some quite significant failures of some of the major agencies, particularly in the London market, and well, also but also in the US market as well. And so there was a lot of skepticism from paper providers that this model was something that was going to work because, yeah, we'd had agencies that hadn't really been acting in the best interests of their paper providers, let's say. So you came at that nadir of you know the, the absolute trough in popularity of the idea of an MGA. And now, of course, we've come through a peak where it seems we've had three peaks, had a minor correction, and now we're in like another wave where it doesn't seem to show any signs of stopping. And whereas before, you didn't have any competition. And now there seems to be so much competition. You know, the last two years, I've interviewed so many people who've set up hybrid carriers, people who I've known from previous lives as retro underwriters on Bermuda. And then before you know it, they've put a billion dollars of premium on quite quickly, I mean, incredibly quickly. So that whole environment's changed. So how do you keep Dual fresh in that environment, knowing that? That talent's got plenty of alternative places to go to these days.
3: I know we're celebrating 25 years today and really talking about that, but I actually think we're at a starting of a new beginning. I think we're really looking at the next 25 years. It's because of what we've built over these 25 years and that infrastructure we've got across the piece. As we referenced earlier we're sitting at about 3.2 billion. So in the reality, we are the size of a lot of insurance companies sitting out there. But I think the bit we've really crafted well is that global distribution we now have in play. And I think the ability to turn around and be able to be a natural home for new people to come into that model. And the reality is we work in an environment where we like underwriters to do what they do best, which is underwrite. And that's what we really cherish across the piece, fully empowered. And I think that's critical that they're concentrating on that piece because we've got all the other bits covered off. So I think we offer a very natural alternative for people who've been in insurance companies for many years. We are the size of an insurance company. We've got this very significant global network from which to operate on. And above all else, and I think that's one thing we probably haven't touched on today, is if I look at that very unique Howden culture, which I think resonates right across broking and underwriting across the entire group, you know, there are more people wanting to come to Howden now than any time before. And one of the main reasons they cite is that true entrepreneurial culture that we've got sitting there and that empowerment they get across the piece. So I think Howden Group, a significant proposition. Jewel, a great platform. And we're having a lot of success at the moment as a consequence in being able to track some really strong talent. You're talking about 3.2 billion. What's sort of in your plan for the next year, next three years,
1: where that 3.2 might be going? We've got a pretty favorable market overall. Obviously, it's up and down in different places. But It's generally a very favorable market for pricing and demand and and everything else. What are you targeting?
3: I think aspirationally, we set ourselves actually going back two years ago to be in three years' time heading towards $5 And, you know, we always say the most important thing is underwriting profitability. If we can't write profitably, being an unprofitable five is not an option. But you reference the market. I think the market at the moment is still in very good condition. We've got a lot of opportunity to bring new people in to join. So in a way, it's about building up small parts. People look at the number and go, Richard, that's one and a half billion. You're talking about underwriting profitability. How do those two comments go together? And the reality is by putting a number of teams into individual areas, in aggregate, they grow to that one and a half that we're getting to five. So I think we can grow in a very responsible, profitable way by using effectively what we've got.
1: And I suppose you can transplant, because now you have a global network, if you have something successful in one territory, you've learn expertise around that, and you then have other territorial Expansion is possible because you've already got an office in another place that perhaps isn't offering that product.
3: I think that was the untapped opportunity. We talked about we brought people on because we found people in the countries and products they were in. We've got a lot more strategic now, which is looking at those key products that we write and and the question now has to be, why are we not offering that in every office? What expertise do we need to some get
1: into? Like, you can imagine in some countries don't need title insurance because uh, you know, land registries are really, really good or whatever it is. But again, you can always check in and you've got nineteen different territories where you can check and say, Does anyone need title insurance in Germany? And well, they say, Well, no, it doesn't need to exist because of this reason or that reason. But it's again, but something you've building a lot of expertise and you know you can try and cross-sell and cross-pollinate this
3: across the world. But I think also our regional structure is really helpful because I would say no carrier partner, no MGA, because ultimately that's what we live by. And because we've now built this regional structure up, if you take a product, let's take cyber as an example, you can turn around and create a center of excellence within a region and then use your five or six or seven offices to turn around and access and distribute that. And all of a sudden, you're putting together an opportunity for our partners to get automatic access, one, to talent but two, to a diversified geographical play across multiple countries. So I think it's really about looking at the way we use and put to our strength to get that capacity, because that journey to 5 billion, clearly more capacity, more carrier partners is absolutely key to that piece. On this capacity question, you've sourced
1: some of your own capacity, and I think probably a very prudent thing to start doing four or five years ago when the markets were hardening and a lot of remediation was going on. How was that experience been like? for
3: a start. I mean, just run us through what you did do and then how that's played out. So I think the reality, we've looked at multiple forms of capacity, because if you were a three and a half billion dollar insurance company, you would be looking at every form of capital that come in to support your ability to support your balance sheet. And we are absolutely committed to working with our long-standing partners who've really taken us on those first journey for 25 years. But As the type of capital coming to the insurance market is changing, we have to turn around and look at how we can bring that capital in to sit alongside our partners to help us go on that $5 growth journey. So we constantly look at the different types of vehicles that are out there that allows capital to come into play, ultimately always remembering that we have to have a licensed product out there, which is one of the challenges sitting along the piece. So I think we've been looking at it. We've been taking it steadily. It's just another way... Of accessing capital rather than it's not you actually putting
1: your own money to use underwriting, it's you accessing capital in a different way. And it obviously gives a slightly, I presume some of these vehicles are going to be more multi year in nature. So they give you a bit more comfort, different level of stability around something. Because I presume you don't set up one of these vehicles just for one year at a time or whatever. Maybe you can, but we probably haven't it's got,
3: capital. Yeah, we probably haven't got time for that one today because <laughs> the reality to me, I think one of the biggest flaws in the MGA model is the annual contract. Because if you look at the time it takes to set up a contract for us to underwrite under, I mean, many, many, many months. And the reality is we've got customers out there and all the rest of it is multi-year contracts has to be the way forward. We talk about operational efficiency in the business and all the other bits and pieces. So there are many reasons why I think the market needs to evolve.
1: Hopefully after 25 years, if you ask for a
3: bit more multi-year support, we would always like more of our contracts, but I'm very comfortable we've got a good number on, on varying multi-year contracts, which, are, which I think is you say, yes, over 25 years, we probably should.
1: And if you renew one third of your capacity on a three-year deal in year one, and then you renew the second third on year two and the third third on year three, you, you're never going to be completely at this cliff edge moment where you know well, only have to find a third of your capacity in any one year, which is quite a you know, sensible way of running
2: things. In any case, Mark, as you know, our life is not that different from any insurer. I mean, any vehicle is going to renew and discuss its reinsurance programs. It's totally dependent on them. And that happens on a yearly basis. No, So um, when we start to get a little bit obsessed about, well, how are we going to work on yearly contracts like the rest of the market? Who hasn't got the same issue every single year? You
1: have to perform, don't you? If you don't perform, you're going to die in the long term. You were
2: talking previously about what happened when a lot of MGA started to disappear. For example, in the year 2000, many, many closed. I think one of the successes that we did was to understand that the main role of the underwriting agency is to be perfectly aligned with the capacity provider. If I win, you win. If you win, I win. things are not good, it's not good for both. And that allowed us to continue through difficult times because capital providers felt comfortable with the way they felt aligned. They say, OK, we are in, uh, exactly on the same boat. So, yeah, let's keep on. This is like another department. They could even see it, no? in a way. No? So that was very, very helpful. No?
1: And as you source your own capacity, so it's probably not right to call it your own capacity, it's capacity that you're managing, perhaps, on behalf of others. Did that cause any friction with longstanding, more traditional paper providers, or did they see it as something complementary?
3: I think it's very much complementary, because we're very committed to those partners, and we're constantly to look at how we bring more partners in, and how we can sit other forms of capital alongside them. Because ultimately, that is the overall efficiency and drives the pricing of the product and the returns that we can all get through. So I think it's a very complementary model and actually is building greater stability in our ability to drive innovation. Because I mean, one of the biggest areas for MGAs is innovation around product, because we do actually have multiple forms of capital when we're crafting our products. You're not restricted just by one balance sheet, one appetite, which may not be able to give 100% around what that particular product client type are looking for. So we can turn around as MJs and put multiple forms of capital together to create the product that the clients really want. And I think a significant amount of product innovation in the market has come through MJs. I think that's probably the reason why, because we can spread risk very effectively.
1: And we expect to see more vehicles of these types. And, And for example, what about Lloyd's again? We've seen quite a lot of syndicate-in-a-box vehicles created by MGAs. Is that something that might appeal? Obviously, Lloyds is almost certainly going to be licensed in every territory where you operate, so it could be useful.
3: I mean, Lloyds is a significant partner to Juul and has been with us along our entire journey. And it almost goes to multiple forms of capital again. I think the reality is, as we have grown geographically, you do need a natural balance of local market knowledge and capacity alongside. So about having that diversified capital model, we use a combination of London market, we use a combination of local domestic markets, because you need to bring that whole knowledge and capability together. So as we've grown, where our capitals come from and where our capacities come from is geographically diversified out as well. So we're still a very significant provider of business interloids. But as Jules grows, that percentage has dropped. And some people pick up the say, well, you're putting less into Lloyds. And the reality is, in dollar terms, we're growing we're more. But as a percentage of Jules grows, it's obviously a bit less. What do you think about this second or third wave of the boom in MGAs?
1: Often that happens when you have a lot of corporate formation happening in big waves. Often some of those don't tend to get scale. And then what then happens is you get consolidation, or you do get some of them actually fail. But do you think that's likely to happen? And again, I presume you'd see yourself as a natural acquirer of some of these businesses if they're not quite getting to scale and they've got good talent and good people and they might fit you. Is that likely to happen at some point in the future, do you
2: think? Well, no, the way that you have worded, Mark, is if they are talented, if they are good, if they are fantastic and they are for sale, yes, we are interested. <laughs> if they
3: comply with everything you have defined, certainly we are interested. <laughs> I think at this moment in time, we're seeing expansion rather than consolidation. And I think. What's interesting is the model has been used across multiple different areas. So it's been used to bring capital in in different ways. It's been used to license in different ways. You've got insurance companies turning around and creating MGAs. You've obviously got brokers creating MGAs. So there's a lot creating it for their slightly different business models. I suppose the question is, will all those business models survive? I try and define a hybrid carrier, and then
1: every hybrid carrier that I actually talk to, for one, they say that we're not really a hybrid carrier, and two, they're all ever so slightly different from each other. Another common feature of some of those hybrid carriers is certainly that very close relationship with reinsurance specifically, not insurance. And again, there are theories behind that, that the reinsurers over years have lost a lot of access to more stable sort of business they used to get in, in quota share in the proportional reinsurance market in these days. A lot of those cedents have become global themselves, and they buy reinsurance in a very different way, and they've centralised that reinsurance buying into Zurich or into Trieste or into wherever. That reinsurance market's really changed for the first time in a long time. You know, we've had a relatively benign and relatively soft reinsurance market for over a decade, and now that's completely reset. Has that changed the way that you're doing business now? Because its ripple effects are affecting. The whole supply chain, obviously, all of your paper providers have had a tough reinsurance renewal, and they're now giving you a tough time because of that.
3: I think the reality is, if you look at jewel in its entirety and its 70 products, a significant number of them actually offer diversification, because the products themselves diversify and actually the geographies diversify out. So I think we're actually a very good capital-efficient play in a lot of cases, so some of those direct reinsurance costs, which are obviously in significance going through the property market and on, on cat, there's actually a lot of people trying to get correlation out into the casualty lines. And obviously, that's an, an area we have a lot of. We have our own areas of business that have obviously got cat exposed and therefore are, are impacted by the pricing that comes through that and the limitation of people's appetite around agri and all the rest of it. But even on those lines, we offer a very different proposition and we're actually able within our portfolios by using multiple carriers to actually diversify their risk out within that and give them access to a more diversified and wider portfolio. So I think we're probably in a position where we can optimise out through what's going on in the reinsurance market, but also optimise out on our product diversification. So not so heavily impacted by it directly, but obviously mindful it's impacting our carrier partners. And then presumably, of course, that market, Obviously, everyone has the direct effects of reinsurance, but at the
1: same time, it has little secondary effects in the market. There are more opportunities opening up where, presumably, some of your previous competitors have got less support, or they've pulled out, or they've reduced their line size, they've reduced their relevance or appetite in that market. So are you finding that your
3: underwriters and potential
1: partners are phoning up every day with new ideas saying, look, the strain is showing this market, there are gaps opening up, we've got opportunity.
3: I think that's one of the key areas we're actually looking at, because a lot of people look at the traditional MGA model, which is we turn around, find a team, go to market, source capacity. And I think with the structure we now have today, we're asking the question very regularly now, which is what products do you have that you want to turn around and distribute? How can we help you turn around and diversify your portfolio, which gives you the balance, which makes your capital more effective? Because. If we've got the distribution there and we can do it more cost effectively than you can, we're a very natural partner for that. And, you know, even within lines where they're well established from some of our partners, we're still an integral part of their distribution model to help them increase their market share in that particular product, which increases their efficiency, increases the effectiveness of their reinsurance because they've got a larger portfolio underlying it. So I think there are many touch points we can work outside traditionally where MJs have come and sought capacity for the new team that's just arrived. But in generic terms, you'd say that probably in this kind of market, there
1: are more opportunities, specific opportunities in
3: each market. I think we're seeing more opportunities now than in, in any time in the last five or six years. Mm-hmm. Which is what normally
2: happens when there are tensions in the markets, is when suddenly there are areas that are not well covered. And that's where you have to see that you have the opportunity to bring something yep. in. You were mentioning about that distribution play. Obviously, the core of Dual
1: is to be a really good underwriter who's fully underlined with the paper provider and effectively be a virtual insurance company and be as auditable as look through the whole thing and you can say this is exactly or better than it would have been done in-house. When you mention distribution, is there a room for distribution in a more pure sense? We were talking right at the beginning about that tied agent, those tied agents in any Spanish town that you go to. You know the Mapfre and the Generali. can you be that now that you do have this global network? Can you be that occasionally as actually just a sales force for a product that has come from somewhere else? You know, from One that really wants to get global distribution and access to your global distribution where there you don't have to do the underwriting and you can just use your efficient distribution model to just sell the product on a take it or leave it kind of basis where you don't underwrite it in the same way?
2: I don't know what Richard is going to say, no? but that model, in my view, Obviously, nothing is set on stone and there are always different ways. I mean, if if we are something is open to here and and open to new ideas and open to new ways, but probably that model of a pure distributor would fit out better under the uh, broken arm of our group,
3: I suppose. Wherever we go, we have to be adding value in that chain because I think insurance industry and distribution costs and all the rest of it, we can't keep on adding bits in there. You know, an integral part is our underwriting. We're an underwriting business. And I'm not saying, no, we wouldn't if it was associated in something that one of our strategic partners was wanting us to do to help them in their underwriting portfolio. So there's a strategic reason for it. But the reality is, I agree, that strikes me more as what we would do in the broking side of the business. I just want to clear that because when you talk about distribution, sometimes it makes me think of that Salesforce rather
1: than being a pure underwriting business, which of course, I would have always thought of you as being a pure underwriting business. The thing
2: is that when you have a strategy and you have a model, you have to be careful and sometimes very tight in making sure that the flavor of quick income doesn't kill the spirit of the animal, no? Because you would start over there and maybe, wow, a lot of income starts to come and suddenly you get to relax. That type of income, either you are a broker and you know how to handle it, but for an animal like us, probably would make us less concentrate on where we should, and that income the same way that goes because really you are not adding any value on the chain, just the pure distribution and that the brokers do it much better than us.
3: Too much of a sugar rush and it would yeah, give exactly, you a headache.
2: Exactly, exactly,
3: exactly. <laughs> I mean, I always say when people <laughs> ask the tech question is the reality is as an MJ, you've got the product, you've got the underwriting knowledge and talent in play, and you've got access to market, which is probably where we define distribution from an MJ point of view is the fact that we have created an ability to distribute our underwriting capability across, in Jules' case today, eleven thousand brokers. If you come and partner with us, we can give our carrier partners access to that. So I think it's distribution in its widest sense. Yeah. And it goes back to sort of the formation of jewel at the beginning, which is it was creating access to the Spanish market in a different way. This time it went through an MGA, whereas originally it was through wholesale broking that got there. And I think it's interesting as you look now, there are more Jewel and Hound offices sitting internationally in the same countries because we're servicing different parts of the market. We're very complementary to each other. And that's probably where I say it's how do we access market clients and bring that together. But obviously for us, the underwriting piece is critical. So you mentioned technology there. I presume
1: you've been on a technological journey it's been wonderful to see this insure tech revolution. There's such a huge amount of investments gone in the last five or six years I've been really covering insure tech. How have you been able to interact with that and how digital can you become? And obviously, I presume, again, whilst you're pure underwriters, I imagine you're always focused on getting the best value out of that, really hammering down on that expense ratio wherever you can and distributing things as digitally as possible wherever you can. How far have you gone on that journey and how much have you interacted with that insure tech world? Have they got any products that have been able to help you? Because sometimes the great thing about these insurtechs is they've, they're well-backed, they're very smart people, and they're coming at insurance usually from outside. And sometimes they're bringing tools that are really interesting. So, I mean, how much of a digital business would you say you are these days?
2: Can I start with something just to make sure that when you think about you, the digital journey has been with us from the very beginning? I was mentioning to you that help that we had with the demand that there was on liability products and the demand that started, very strong demand that started in Latin American countries. But if one of our added values was to be local, and at that moment we didn't have offices in Latin America, we had to find a way by which at least our brokers could work on their time zone. So we designed a digital system that allowed the underwriting and the issuance of policies and everything. Locally through these internet vehicles. And this was in 1999. I was going to meetings. Well, I still don't understand anything, no? But at that moment, it was like magic what they were telling me. And from the very beginning, there hasn't been like we do things manually and we do things digitally. It was all too well from the beginning.
1: As digital as possible. So that's always been part of the DNA of the yeah, business. And-
3: currently we're investing more in technology than any time we have done in our history so it's it, it's a significant investment in the business and it's it's because we need to keep moving forward on this journey and it's not only just about the delivery the digital delivery and the rest of it it's about the data we're collecting how we're it's collecting that data and mm-hmm. actually how we can then use that to inform us on making better underwriting decisions designing better products and you know I don't think the industry's been great over data at all, but it's certainly an absolute key focus for us. And you were talking around the InsurTech piece. Tom Hode, who I think you probably know, yeah, us, of course. has recently joined us. And that's really to turn around and give us more insight into that InsurTech space and saying, how can we help and develop alongside it? So there are many initiatives we've got going around the whole data technology piece. For anyone listening, Tom Hode
1: was on the podcast, and it was a fascinating podcast, actually. So probably in his previous incarnation, but I think you've got a huge flavour of what he would bring to the Howden organisation by listening to that. So again, so it sounds like with the InsurTech thing, you're open to anyone who's developing tools, developing anything that can make you a better underwriter or a better reporter to your paper or a better, more efficient business.
3: I think what's interesting, we've got quite a number of options that we're looking at at the moment where technology is a key differentiator in the proposition they're bringing to market. And they're looking at traditional insurance products and actually looking at how they underwrite them a different way using technology and data in, into that. So there have been some quite challenging products that have not always had the best of loss ratios, but actually with the additional intelligence that's coming in is actually making them a much more profitable underwriting product because you can prove out the data and where it's coming from. So I think application across the piece is absolutely key. So the challenge, I think it's not any longer how you distribute products on
2: an efficient way, on an easy way to the brokers. That is given for granted. The challenge is managing the data. That is the real difficulty. And especially when you are in multinational countries, to make sure that everybody puts the data in the same form, same way, all that, because you need good data to be there in order to, you know, to manage it. And I
1: suppose you know you're trying to draw in global insights from a DNO but which is now going to be hundreds of millions around the world and all the valuable data and underwriting insights and trend insights and other things, you could do that. And of course, if you haven't got it ingested in the right way, it's not going to tell you anything, is it? Exactly.
3: I think one of the biggest challenges has been the way claims are actually recorded and put in the system to be meaningful when you're trying to turn around and turn them into analytics that can really help drive future underwriting performance. But you talk about that DNO product. I mean, we've got 25 years data around that. And as we've added more geographies on, that's come into play. And that's a key bit in driving your future how can I interpret what I've got and how can I make more products out of that going forward? Obviously, so you rode this
1: rocket of DNO. Since then, we've had cyber being another sort of rocket that you can grab hold of. What do you think the next rockets are going to be? Do you know? Do you have any inkling of what might really take off that isn't really necessarily mainstream right now? Mark, we know, but if we told you, we would have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you, you'll recognize it when you see it and then you grab onto it when you see it.
3: You know, I think we've got an opportunity to turn around and take existing products and put them together in a different way using all the things we've just been talking about. And, I mean, one of the often complaints comes about that we don't actually, as an industry, produce products that actually are fulfilling our clients' needs. And I think the more smart we get technology, we have that ability in MGA to turn around, as I said earlier, to take four or five or six different appetites to create a significant opportunity. Yeah.
1: Well, I suppose also there are classes that are in remediation that have not been done very well. Everyone's absolutely sick of them. And then you finally have an opportunity to fix them. Like we've had like US trucking, that kind of stuff has had terrible loss ratios for years and years and years. And it's, but that's just also thrown up a big opportunity for someone to do it better. It's been technology and other things so they just weren't doing it right. And now you finally see an opportunity to do an old product in a new way and in a way that probably is more relevant to the customer and
2: makes a profit for someone. There is everything. There is old products that you have to see how you can do them in a better way. There are new products that, by definition, are going to struggle at a certain point. Cyber is an example. There is an information to really know. They can say whether it's been underwritten correctly or not or whatever. Experience will tell. We think we are. And I find it quite fun. I had the other day a discussion related with another item, related with insurance, how insurance could participate on helping to minimize climate risks. And one of the things that people were putting on the table is they, 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 we haven't got data. We haven't got data. We cannot go into that area. We haven't got data. And I was saying, what data did you have on cyber crime? Why were you brave enough to go into that one and not this one? Explain because I don't get it, no? Either we don't do both or we try both, no? So, yes, many products will have a learning curve, obviously. Yeah, and. The data is created by
1: doing it. Exactly. And then obviously make sure you measure it when you're doing it. <laughs> exactly. It's a very expensive way of creating data that you don't end up using, is nothing worse. One thing I'd like to ask more on a cultural question now that you're such a big organization, so diverse, 1,300 stuff, that's a huge, you know, 19 countries. How do you keep that feeling of being all one big happy family, one big duel? How do you do that? It must be a huge amount of effort.
2: We were talking about this before, and, and obviously Richard is completely on the day-to-day and suffering these situations. First of all, big families and close families, they need to fight. <laughs> if not, it's not true that the family is a family. So you haven't got to be afraid of, of fights. If there is a fight, that doesn't mean that the family is breaking away. It means that the family is alive and spirit, <laughs> no? Second, as you know, one of the key elements we say in our group is people first. And people first has to be understood. All of us, we have to understand that people first doesn't mean me first. <laughs> so it's people first. You have to do an exercise of that many times. Second, I don't think there are many companies where everybody has the opportunity at some stage and with different formulas to become a, a shareholder of the company in which it's working. And that, that obviously helps to bring an alignment. And I would say the last point, the most important one is that when we talk about people first, the first thing we assume is people first means that diversity is a power in all type of ways. So there can be different opinions. You can talk about different things. You can have different ways of uh, wanting to approach things. You can discuss absolutely everything. And then there are certain areas where you might need a common decisions. And in other areas, maybe you don't. No, But you have to accept that diversity and people knowing that when they join here. I was putting the example of a big Spanish bank that it's all over the world, that if you go to any airport and you see some of them, I mean, you notice it's them. You know to whom they work. Well, in our group, you would never know. So we dress as we want. We walk as we want. We talk as we want. We are person. We are people. And each one is an individual. But individuals that have a common way of doing things. The rest, not necessary. And then obviously, which is, this is quite easy to say, but it's the basis, then it's the headache that Richard has to handle more often because obviously, like on every family, no discussions, you talk, then, now he step on my toe. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> <laughs>
3: no, Richard? I totally echo absolutely everything you said there. And I think whether it be Howden Broking or whether it be Jewel or all parts of Howden, I think what we have at the moment is completely unique in the market, in the culture, and I think that is well recognized. And... The challenge, as you reference there, is as we grow out, is keeping that across the piece. But, you know, if you've got that same culture in every one of those take our 19 countries, then as people join, they're joining into that. And I think it's very much for all of us. And we do talk in the group about all of us, which is it's for all of us to turn around and make sure as people come in, they feel and embrace an integral part of that culture. And, you know. Louise referenced it there. You know, occasionally families fight and the important thing is we recognise that and we deal with that and we realise what makes us really strong and we adhere to that.
1: I've come to the end of all my questions. I don't know if you've got anything else to add. Have we missed something out? That's always it's a terrible feeling at the end of an interview. thing. have we forgotten to talk about something? I've looked around. I don't think we have. No, speak I, I now. Just
2: looking backwards, it looks like if 25 years has been so easy, that really, Richard, the next twenty-five years is is a piece of cake, no? <laughs> <laughs> is he the one setting your target?
3: No, or no. David. I <laughs> <laughs> no, say the same. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm setting it as a, as a, as a friend, no? <laughs> no? I think it's been great to have the opportunity to talk about Jules' first twenty-five years because I think it's to the team and Luis was there at start alongside David. If I look at what the group is today, I think it's a fantastic success story off the vision they had twenty-five years ago. And if we can be as half successful in the next 25, slightly putting the comment back the other way, <laughs> then I think we'd be in a great place. Well, just going back to Luis's life
1: expectancy point, the secondary part of that is that a lot of companies find it very hard to get to the fifth year. But if they get to the fifth and beyond, and so the sixth, then they live forever. You know, they collect their bus pass and their pension at the end. So you're certainly well beyond the stage where you have to worry about your longevity. And so you can look forward to that you will have 25 more years with absolute confidence, I would say. And just... I think the real challenge is how you're going to keep that spirit and that same rate of growth and innovation going as you get bigger and bigger. So it's a nice problem to have, though, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So it's just thanks so much for your time. It's been wonderful. The sun was shining in Madrid, and I think the sun's shining here inside this office. So, And long may it continue to do so. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice
1: of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass.
0: Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.